welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin, your host, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Welcome to the show. Welcome to episode nine. I finally got around to pre-recording an intro so that I don't have to read off the same script every time that we start an episode. Uh, so that's a neat little, neat little thing. I'm I'm happy about. I'm also wired, like absolutely wired on coffee right now. I thought I was using the same proportions with measuring the amount of grams to the amount of milliliters, but I guess I might be off. I ha- maybe this coffee is just stronger and has a higher caffeine content. I have no idea, but I'm wired so. Please forgive me in advance if I say something stupid or if I just go off topic or if I'm stumbling over my words or I just totally space out because I don't know what's going to happen, but we're just we're just going to go with it, okay? Um, today we're diving into our very first book study as a podcast, which I'm thrilled right now i checked our stats and we have hit over a thousand listens as of today i think it was at 1001 listens of our show this is total across every episode which i'm just blown away i never thought that i'd actually get that many people to listen and part of that is because the society has kind of boosted some some of that but Anyways, I'm just thrilled, and thank you all for listening. Um, yeah, just thank you. That's all I got to say. Um, so let's get into Zechariah. We're going to be going into the first six verses, but before we do, uh, we're going to talk about the historical context, um, some of the literary stuff that is important, um, just important notes about the book of Zechariah before we actually get into the text itself. Um, also, I want to be transparent with you guys about the books that I'm using, um, not because I'm ashamed of them by any means, but just so you guys are aware, if you want um, good, solid resources on the book of Zechariah, I've been using the Expositor's Bible Commentary, which isn't the most, um, it's not the most technical source but it's still uh, very useful and has um, really, it's got really solid notes. It's, it's a really good source to, to say the least. Um, Additionally, I've been using a book that's part of a series um, called the minor prophets. Um, So this is the third part of that series and the whole series I believe is edited by the same guy. Um, But I know for sure that this part of the series is edited by Thomas Edward Comiskey, who was a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, really smart dude. And he also wrote the section on Zechariah. And so I was doing research on, you know, what commentaries are the best. Um, There was a couple that were part of like the reformed expositors series or something like that. Um, And they looked good, but they were more uh, pastoral in emphasis, which by no means is wrong, but just for the sake of this show, because it's more exegetical and expositionally 
based and focused. Um, I went with this book and I was not disappointed at all. I want to read the second paragraph of um, Mick Comiskey's introduction where he says, in this commentary, I take somewhat uh, the same approach. And he's talking about the same approach as one of his previous commentaries. Um, But I also borrow from the methodology of biblical theology. In my opinion, biblical theology is a distinct discipline, not simply a way of doing Old or New Testament theology. It is based on solid principles of exegesis and is historical in nature. By historical, I mean that the interpreter will, where possible, exegete a text against its historical background and will observe the development of the text's theology across the Testaments, observing the rich faceting it receives in its progress through redemptive history. And with that, I'm fully uh, supportive and fully... um, excited. I don't know why I use that wording. Anyways, I totally agree with what he's saying and um, the method that he's using to go about um, exegeting and expositing the text. It's not just looking at the small details with a um, magnifying glass, but it's also taking a step back and looking at how this is developed throughout, um, throughout the whole Bible. So with that being said, let's um, get into the background of Zechariah. We're going to ask a couple just basic questions. Um, There's different ways that we could ask these questions. There's probably a couple different questions we could ask to get at the similar, um, the similar place. So the questions that I have that we'll be trying to answer are who wrote it? When was it written? What's the structure of the book? And what's the purpose of this book? So let's start with who wrote it. It was likely Zechariah. Um, There's pretty good evidence um, just from chapter one. There's two sections in chapter one where it says, this is the word of the Lord, which came to Zechariah. Um, And then there's another section later on in the book where, again, it says, this is the word of the Lord, which came to Zechariah. So there's no reason to doubt this, but higher criticism has to ruin things for us and say, well, maybe, maybe we should doubt it. Um, the, so I'm going to read basically just this whole paragraph. It's from the introductory section. It's, um, a smaller subheading called integrity. So like a lot of times in commentaries, you'll read stuff about like the integrity of a book. Like, is it something that we should be trusted or is there something that, um, we need to know about, the authorship, things of that nature. And so when it comes to the authorship, this also has to do with the dating a little bit. So we're going to be merging categories just a little bit because, and the next question that we'll get to is when was it written? And so um, this will help answer that question as well. When was it written? Um, But I'm not going to tell you when it was written until after I read this paragraph. So uh, let's see. Giving them a pre-exilic provenance, Joseph Mead assigned chapters nine through 11. There's 14 chapters in this book. If you're not familiar with it, um, the basic, um, breaking down of it is that there's the first half or the first part, um, chapters one through eight, and then there's a split of nine through 14. 
Um, and that split is just because there's a change in subject, a change in writing style. Um, it goes from a lot of visions and other types of uh, prophetic writings um, to another style of prophetic writings. Um, it's a bunch of oracles and poetic prophecy about the Messiah. And I'll explain the structure of the book in just a moment, but just wanted to make sure that we understand that there are 14 chapters and 9 through 14 is mainly the part that's in question. 1 through 8 generally um, agreed upon that it is written by Zechariah around the time of Darius. So Joseph Mead assigns chapters 9 through 11 to Jeremiah on the basis of the free rendering of Zechariah eleven thirteen that um, Matthew 27, 9 attributes to the prophet Jeremiah. And this is in part just because there's really, really similar wording in Jeremiah. Um, I remember reading that about a month ago and like just in my devotion time. And I was, my Bible that I used doesn't have footnotes, which is kind of, or it doesn't have cross references, which is kind of sad, but it's nice because as I'm reading, I can kind of take the time to stop and make a connection and look up where the reference actually is too. And so I saw that it, it says, as it is written in Jeremiah, and then it quotes Zechariah. But I looked up the Jeremiah quote, and it's pretty similar. Um, and so Matthew is probably just trying to connect it to a bigger name, a bigger prophet, or he might be connecting it to um, the whole chunk of Jeremiah, whereas um, the quote is just a small, it's just one verse or one line from Zechariah. So that could be it. I didn't study it too deeply, um, but just wanted to throw that out there. So that was, Joseph Mead is from 1586 to 1638. That's when he lived. Um, This is before we get into um, German higher criticism. And don't worry, the higher critics like to ruin things, and you'll see. Uh, In 1785, William Newcomb argued for a pre-exilic date for chapters 9 through 11, noting that Ephraim, the northern kingdom, appears to have independent existence in those chapters, and that the enemies of the people are Assyria and Egypt. Toward the end of the 18th century, scholarly opinion began to move in another direction. So they change from pre-exilic thinking, maybe uh, 9 through 11 was actually written before the exile, to um, by 1797, Karodi placed chapters 9 through 14 well after the time of Zechariah. And this is where higher criticism loves to do. They like to take um, a book that is attributed to an early date and then say that it was actually written way later. I don't know exactly why they do that um, other than that they see a writing style and just assume eh, it's probably, um, you know, that writing couldn't have been from that guy because it he changed his style. So it's clearly, clearly later. I don't know why that makes logical sense to them, but for some, 
some reason it is. Um, Icorn, he's a guy that you'll hear a lot of when you do Old Testament studies. He profoundly influenced Zechariah's studies with his contention that chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 12 is late, comprising an account of Alexander's conquest of Syria-Palestine. He also maintained that chapter 14 was Maccabean in origin, dating it to 161 BC. So he goes further and says that it wasn't um, just well after the time of Zechariah, but he actually tries to place a date on it, saying that this is the second century BC. And to answer the question of when was this written, uh, we can gather that this was likely written at least the first chapters one through eight was written right around 520 um, because chapter one, verse one says um, the word of the Lord that came to Zechariah, the son of Barakai, the son of Ido, Ido, sorry. Um, in the, I don't have, hmm. let's see, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And so, all you have to do really to find out when this text was written is find when did Darius reign. Um, and so some people have said that chapters 9 to 14 was written at a later period within Zechariah's lifetime, which I think is reasonable to say, um, but he could have just written it all in one swift writing. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um but I will contend that Zechariah wrote the entire book. So um, Darius reigned in 520. He had, um, this is well after the Persians had taken over the Babylonian empire. And so just for a reminder, the Israelites had their kingdom um, and the Northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in seven... I don't remember. I think it's 722 BC. And then um, I could be wrong. I'm trying to just remember off the top of my head. Um, and then the Babylonians came and destroyed Judah in 586 BC. And then after 70 years, um, the Persians came and destroyed the Babylonians in um 538, 39. Um, and then it took about up until 520 for there to be a set king. So there was the one king who came and destroyed um, Babylon, and then there was another king who came up, and then we get Darius who came, and by the time that he was the king, they, the Persian Empire owned almost all of the land in the Middle East. Um, I don't know how far east it went, but they owned a, like their empire was huge. And it took about two years for Darius to kind of smooth out his empire and really make himself the king. There were a couple people who tried to revolt and claim themselves as king of certain portions of land because, like I said, the empire was so huge. Um, so within two years, Darius is finally the king. There's a period of peace, 
And this is when Zechariah starts to get these visions and he begins his prophetic ministry. And this is also while the uh, Israelites are rebuilding the temple, they had started right when they got back. And then there was like a 16 year period of pause. Um, There's just some other issues that got in the way. Um, So I hope that answers the question of when it was written at at the very earliest, it was written 520 BC. Um, it could have been later in Zechariah's life, around 480. Um, so that's that's my answer for when it was written. What's the structure of the book? Um, I already mentioned that chapters 1 through 8 can be broken, or the whole book can be broken into two parts. Part 1 is 1 through 8, and part 2 is 9 to 14. Within part one, we've got four smaller sections where chapter one, verses one through six, which is what we'll be covering, is an introduction to the book and a call to repentance. And then chapter one, verse seven through chapter six, verse eight, is eight night visions. Um, And we're going to go through those, I think, one vision at a time, pretty much, Um, maybe even slower. Um, verse or chapter six, verse nine through verse 15 is a symbolic crowning of Joshua, the high priest. And then we have chapters seven and eight, which is this theological question on fasting. And then we start, um, part two, which is chapters nine through 14, where there are two broad sections. Uh, chapters nine through 11 is an advent and rejection of the Messiah and then 12 to 14 is the advent and reception of the Messiah. So that's just a general outline, um, something to just make note of. You don't have to memorize it, um, but it's just for the sake of acknowledging that there is structure to the book, um, and we're going to try to follow the structure a little bit. Not a little bit, a lot of it. <laughs> What's the purpose of the book? Um, as we'll see as we get into this section, um, it's the purpose is to rebuke the Israelites and call them to repentance and encourage them to complete the building of the temple. Don't give up and be dismayed that there is um, some stuff getting in the way of their building. Don't let that stop you from the building of the temple because once it is built, then they'll be able to finally get back to worshiping God in his temple. Um, it's a it's a big deal for the Israelites to be able to worship in the temple again. And so Zechariah and also Haggai, who is a contemporary of Zechariah, both of them work together as prophets, encouraging the people and reminding them to um, run away from their sin because if they don't, then they'll end up like their grandpappies and get smitten by God, (laughs) pretty much. Uh, There is also a part of the rebuke is also part of a um, popular belief that Yahweh had forsaken his people to look with favor on the surrounding nations. He, there was this, I mean, it's a pretty logical conclusion. I'm not saying it's a right conclusion, but when you look at the events that had just happened, 
Israel was thriving as a nation, and then they slowly start to get destroyed, and other nations start to prosper. Babylon, which is a much larger nation, conquers Israel. They thrive for a while, and then an even bigger nation comes and destroys Babylon. And so Israel is still not in their homeland. They don't have their homeland, but there's an even bigger empire that is thriving. And so the assumption is just that God had abandoned the Israelites and he's just going along and letting the uh, other nations thrive and succeed. And so there's a rebuke that God is most definitely not abandoning his promises. He's actually being faithful to the Israelites by disciplining them and um, punishing their fathers for their sinfulness. So without further ado, let's get into the text. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, read like this. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I will almost always be reading from the New American Standard Bible unless I make a note of it. Uh, So in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So, verse 1. We're just going to go through this verse by verse. Um, As John MacArthur says, verse by verse, line by line, word by word, letter by letter. That's how we're going to go through it if that's how we have to do it. Um, I think it's really useful to just go verse by verse. Um, So verse one, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido. Ido. I always want to say Ido, but it is in Hebrew, it's pronounced Ido. So I I don't know why I want to say Ido, but Ido is how it's pronounced. I'm drinking more coffee so that I continue to stay absolutely wired. Uh, (laughs) As I already mentioned, uh, Darius of Persia is the king uh, of Persia. He had just kind of calmed down some other political rebellions and uh, people trying to claim their own little sections of land. So that's just pretty straightforward. Eighth month, second year of Darius. So 520. Um, in I, the fall of 520. And then Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. We don't have to spend a ton of time here, but I just wanted to make an interesting note that you might read about if you're reading some other commentaries, that um, this is the only place where Zechariah is listed as the son of Berechiah. In Ezra, he's listed as the son of Edo, uh, perhaps it just has to do with the fact that maybe Berechiah died while Zechariah was young. 
maybe Barakaya just wasn't a very popular priest or a very popular guy. So he just wasn't listed. It's not really clear why in Ezra, Zechariah is listed as the son of Edo, but then in the book of Zechariah, he says he's the son of Barakiah, the son of Edo. Um, when a grandson is listed as the the son of their grandfather, it might just be in connection with the grandfather being a more prominent name, someone who the audience is going to recognize. Um, so just a little note um, about who Zechariah is, who his lineage is. Also in Ezra, it, there's a note that Edo is a priest, so Zechariah is coming from a priestly family. Um, whether he was a priest or not is kind of ambiguous, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Verse 2, short but very important verse. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Now, why does Zechariah have to point this out? He could just go on and write verse 3 which says, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So Zechariah doesn't have to remind them that the Lord was very angry with your fathers. He could just tell the Israelites, hey, return to the Lord, because you just should return to him. He is worthy of it. He's eternally holy. Um, and that's really often um, an argument that we, we hear, you know, like God is holy enough that he just deserves us to um, to return to him and worship. But I think there's a really neat um, use of this phrase that the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Mick Comiskey points out that lurking behind this statement is the implication that Yahweh's anger <clears throat> is not confined to the previous generation, but could lash out again if the people should follow the same path as their hapless predecessors. So, as he continued to write, he mentioned that this is kind of like an ominous thunder. Um, and when I read that, I was reminded of like a thunderstorm. So, when he's reminding his audience that the Lord was very angry he's reminding them of like a severe thunderstorm where, which we get a ton of in the Midwest. Um, there's, you know, during a really bad thunderstorm, you hear really loud cracks of thunder, um, lightning flashes. And almost immediately there's just this huge, um, boom of thunder. And it's, it's not this slow rumble, but it's a really sharp crack. It sounds like a tree just got hit right behind you. Um, but then as the storm passes on and goes somewhere else, you'll still maybe see a few bits of lightning here or there. Um, but the thunder moves away and it, it's not these really loud, sharp cracks, but it's this ongoing and uh, slow rumble in the background. And when we think of this verse with that imagery of this slow rumble that's going behind um you know the storm has passed on but it's it's still there like you you just have to look 
a little bit into the past to see it. So um, it's really important that we think of it that way because um, it it makes the invitation of verse 3 way more um, hopeful and way more of... Uh, way more of a loving uh, invitation. I also want to read that um, Mick Comiskey notes that the prophets understood God or yeah, they understood him to be capable of intense anger as well as of tenderness and mercy. If we fail to comprehend the rich faceting of the old Testament, the rich faceting the old Testament gives to the divine personality, we may end up constructing our own image of God and this is uh, this kind of plays into a theological term called the divine simplicity, where we understand God as not being made up of parts, but he so he cannot be divided into parts. He is one whole. So if he is holy and loving, they are inextricably connected. I think that's the right word. They they can't be separated. Um, so any part of God that is loving is also holy and any part of God that is holy is also loving. And it continues as we add, um, or as God reveals, um, attributes of himself. So he is merciful and his mercy is loving and holy. Um, and his holiness is merciful and loving and the list goes on and on. And so this is a a clear picture that God has anger for sinners. Um, don't let that escape your memory, but also, you know, don't be the person who thinks that God is always angry with you because verse three is a tender and merciful invitation. Thus says the Lord of hosts, or it says, therefore say to them, God is saying to Jeremiah, say to the Israelites, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Um, whenever we see a therefore in scripture, you might have heard this before already, but I want to make sure that this point is driven. We ask the question, what's the therefore therefore? Um, it's important that we ask this question anytime we see a therefore. Sometimes it's a super easy answer. Um, it's just to explain what was said, but also, um, the therefore is literally in Hebrew, it's an, and it's a conjunction, just, uh, the word that it's attached to is Amarta. So, and you will say, or, and you shall say, um, it's a juxtaposition against this dark, ominous cloud that has just kind of passed over Israel. So, um, it's making the previous verse the background for which uh, this this invitation is uh, put upon. And we hear a lot the phrase, the Lord of hosts. It says three different times, thus says the Lord of hosts, or declares the Lord of hosts, um, which is really repetitive. And it's really interesting that it's used so many times here because... Um, it's literally Yahweh of armies. Uh, so 
the word hosts in Hebrew is a military term related to the vast hosts of an army, the, the troops of an army. Um, so when, whenever you see a, a time where it says the Lord of hosts in your Bible, uh, that's what that means, that God is the valiant warrior of the heavenly host. Um, it's super powerful to think of God in this way that he fights for his people. Um, additionally, I want to, sorry, I'm looking at my notes and I'm trying not to rely on them too much, but also my thoughts just go everywhere. So I need really tight notes to keep me <laughs> on track. Um, return to me that I may return. When I read this phrase while I was, uh, studying and reading this passage a couple of times, I was kind of taken off guard. Um, and not because it's in the Bible, but just kind of, I was, I was thinking of different ways that we might understand this verse. Um, it says that I may return. It's like almost as if, if we return to God, then there's a, that's a condition that God will return to us as if, um, our salvation is conditional in a sense. But that's not at all what, what this means. It might just be kind of a, maybe not a poor translation, but a poor understanding on our end. Um, this is another juxtaposition taking place where the word is va'ashuv, um, which is, and I will return. Not It's not that I will return. It's not so that I will return. It's just return to me and I will return. It's uh, contrasting the benefit that we will receive or that the Israelites would receive if they would return to Yahweh. Um, return to me and I will return to you. It's it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Something that doesn't need to be dwelled upon or overthought for too long. Uh, verse 4 We're just going to keep plugging away. Um, Verse four says, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. The prophets that Zechariah is referencing um, is likely just the summary of all of the, um, prophets who were pre-exilic or right on the cusp of the exile, they had all had the same message to um, the Israelites' forefathers, return to me. And they all also had the same response. They did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Um, So this message is turning into, it's narrowing in. Don't be like your fathers who didn't return at the message of the prophets. So Zechariah as a prophet is saying, Hey, listen to me, do it. Make sure you listen to me because if you don't, this return from the exile isn't going to last very long. So this is the rebuke, the encouragement and, uh, repentance call that the prophets are giving to the, um, the Israelites who are returning from exile and have just barely been out of exile. 
And then we get into verses five and six, which we're going to take them together because verse five and then verse five directly has to do with verse six. I would also say that it has to do with verse four and verse six. Uh, So it says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Um, This is... This is so connected to verse four, where, you know, it says your fathers, um, they did not listen or give heed to me. And then he asks this question, your fathers, where are they? They didn't give, so they didn't give heed to the, the word of the Lord. And now where are they? (laughs) And the prophets, do they live forever? Which is a really interesting question that kind of gets answered or explained in verse six. But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So there's this contrast between uh, the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants and my prophets overtake your fathers. So the fathers were destroyed. They were overtaken by the word that they will be destroyed if they do not repent. They did not repent and they were destroyed. But the prophets, this is peculiar that they were, they're being emphasized. They too passed away. Their ministry is no longer around. But the words and the statutes of God are still around. God who has spoken the word is still alive and still speaking. And Zechariah then, um, and well, before I get into this next part, I just want to make note that um, this is really pushing the idea that God accomplishes what he declares. He says that he will bring something about and he accomplishes it. He brings it to its end. Um, Even though the vessels through which God had brought about destruction and the vessels that he destroyed are gone, uh, or through, let me clarify, the vessels through which God used to bring about the message of destruction and the vessels that he destroyed are gone, the words of the Lord have not gone away. Um, And then this last line, then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds. So he has dealt with us. And this is not talking about the audience that Zechariah is speaking to. Zechariah is summarizing um, how the, how the Israelites fathers responded to the word of the Lord overtaking them as the Lord of hosts has purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds. So he has dealt with us. In other words, it was too late and they were destroyed. Um, It says, then they repented. Um, But the way that Mick Comiskey translates this, which I think is kind of neat, is he doesn't say um, they repented. He says, so they turned and acknowledged. Um, so the, the word that's used for repent is just a general word that means to turn. So they turned and, 
they turned and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in our accordance, in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So the fathers were not, and even if um, they were genuinely repentant, um, we see through the story of Kings that Manasseh had done so, so much wicked, um, so much wickedness that when King Josiah comes along, even though he's a righteous king and, you know, he established the observance of the Passover, which hadn't been observed in decades. Um, even though Josiah was such a righteous king, it had already been set in stone that God was going to destroy the Israelites because their heart had still remained hard. Um, it seemed like there was a turning point, but Israel was still going to be destroyed. Um, so <clears throat> this is the message that Zechariah brings, that uh, he encourages the Israelites with a, a glimmer of hope. Don't be like your fathers. He reminds them of their story. Um, sometimes we think of our story as, um, or the story of the church or the story of Israel as something that is bad or something that God could not have possibly brought about, but God uses it. And I believe that God decrees all things and he has decreed that this would happen. And he then further uses it for his purposes of calling people to repentance. Zechariah proclaims the word of the Lord and calls the Israelites to repentance and says, Hey, remember what happened when your fathers didn't repent? Yeah, they got destroyed. Don't be like them. You don't want to be destroyed. Um, but instead, turn to the Lord. And this is, it's a powerful, um, powerful message for us that uh, we would be reminded, you know, saved or not, that God is very quick to bring about righteous judgment, um, but he's also very quick to save and so if we're already saved, um, it's a reminder that God will continue to preserve us and continue to um, be our rock and our um, our fortress that we can hide in and hide and lean on. Um, and so, yeah, this is I, this is just a, a beautiful message of a call to repentance, a call. Um, to turn from your evil ways. Um, you know, just because we are saved and being sanctified, that doesn't mean that we are entirely sanctified and perfect. Uh, we still stumble every single day. We still sin every single day. And so we need to be reminded that we need to turn away from our sin every day. So uh, I hope this was encouraging uh, and edifying. Um, Thanks for listening and continue to seek God in his word. Continue to get to know him through his word, which he has perfectly revealed to us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen. And subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. 
You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. If you have a question that you would like to hear answered on the show, reach out on social media or email us at ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. We are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters and Doctrinal Discipleship. For other edifying material, check out ReformPodcasts.com and Doctrinal Discipleship either on Facebook or DoctrinalDiscipleship.com.